Welcome to Wisdom for Dissidents um, by Jeff Myers, um, taught by me, Joel Edgar. And for those in the podcast, this is a full house. And I'm glad you guys could join me. Um, I'm just going to start by reading from James 2, verses 1 through 13, and then we'll get into, uh, we'll have a prayer and we'll get into our material. James 2. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come unto, excuse me, for if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man with vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you, and draw you before, uh, excuse me, and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that were excuse me do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which ye are called if ye fulfill the the royal law according to the scripture thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself ye do well but if ye have respect to persons ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors I should have brought my glasses For whosoever shall keep the whole law, and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, Do not commit adultery, and also do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy. He hath showed no mercy, and mercy rejoiceth against judgment. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you. I ask that you would uh, humble me as we uh, expound on your word in the book of James and uh, on Jeff Meyer's words. Help me to do it justice. I pray that you would uh, watch over us, watch over our conversation and help us to glean the wisdom that you have for us. Help us, to, um, help us to achieve your perfect work here. And I pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so this is Wisdom for Dissidents. And Mrs. West, I have a course outline for you. It's important because um, it does have a couple memory uh, tests coming up. I think I did it every three weeks um and just a mistake that bob pointed out is um on the first date uh today is the 25th not the 24th i had the overturning of row one year celebration on my mind so that's why i made that mistake at least that's my story and i'm sticking to it all right so you have our course outline on june 25th uh, today we're going over chapter six Um, which is currying favor and cultivating faithfulness. July 2nd, hopefully I got that right, 
chapter 7, Deliverance and Vindication. July 9th is chapter 8. We'll have a memory test that day. James 3, verses 3 through 5. So it's a long one. So it's going to take, it's going to take some time to memorize. Um, and then we'll be talking about the potent power of the tongue. July 16th, we'll be going over chapter 9, exposing the contagion of mimetic violence. And so I learned a new word. I didn't know what mimetic meant before I read this book. July 23rd, chapter 10, uh, the prophet James. July 30th, chapter 11, we'll have a memory test. James 5, 7, we'll be talking about patience, prayer, and restoration. And then hopefully August 6th, chapter 12, um, we'll be doing final reflections and summary. Uh, like I said to anybody I've given this outline uh, to, I am at war with this outline. I did make it, but I am at war with it because I want to do Jeff Meyer's justice. Um, this is a very meaty book, and there's a lot to it. So, before we get into the content in a quick review, I just want to mention a couple uh, things that I found interesting this week, and they do relate to our course. Um, last week, Pastor Guptel mentioned in his sermon about the Humanist Manifesto, and he, he might not have been talking about a particular book, but I actually looked into it, and there is a there is a particular uh, Humanist Manifesto, that, um, and it's a really quick and easy read, but it was interesting to me um, reading this book because it's, it's very high-handed rebellion against God. But one of the things they did was they, they took a lot of Christian values, uh, Christian, um, Christian ideas, and they, they, put, they put them in, uh, in a humanist framework. Um, so what they ultimately want a lot of things that we want. The end of war. They want education for everyone and many other things, but they want it in a secular human-worshipping framework, which if you look at that, if you, if you look at that in, a, in its deepest sense, it doesn't make sense. It's, so you want all these things, but to what end? You know, and So I found that very interesting, and we can have some discussion on that um, with anybody who wants. And the other thing I read this week, and I'm almost finished, is a book by Rod Dreyer, am I saying his name right? Called Live Not By Lies, um, which is also the title of a Alexander Solzhenitsyn speech that he gave uh, just before he was uh, kicked out of Russia. And he talks about how, it's, it's actually called, it's, it's actually called in his subtitle, uh, a manual for Christian dissidents. So one of the things Jeff Myers uh, talked about in the opening of this book was his book is not a manual for Christian dissidents, although it is very useful, you know, wisdom for dissidents. But Rod Dreher's uh, subtitle for Live Not By Lies is a manual for Christian dissidents. And it's a very good book. Um, have you read it? It's a, it's a very good book, and it talks about um, how Christians have resisted throughout history, mostly focusing on um, the USSR and the Soviet Union and, uh, and under communism. Um, any thoughts on that before I go on? Anyway, if, if anybody's interested, I, I recommend those uh, 
two books highly. Uh, the reason I'd recommend the Humanist Manifesto is, you know, approach it with maturity, approach it as a mature Christian with wisdom. It's not something that I'd say is good, but it's good to read um, with the understanding that you're, you're uh, trying to find out how our enemy thinks and how they're, uh, they're trying to twist our values for their own ends. That being said, moving on. So a quick review. I want to go over a few things. What are our primary weapons? Covenant renewal worship, prayer, worship, and song. The, battle is ev- the battleground is everywhere, including our churches, our homes, and the public square. And uh, some of these slides I am going to skip over so we can get to today's content. I'm, I'm already... The problem is I like talking too much. You can ask my dad. It's been a problem all my life. So let's, uh, let's go to why authorship is important. It's important understanding uh, biblical herm- hermeneutics. It's a primary battleground in our greater church culture. Hermeneutics is the branch of theology that deals with proper interpretation of the text, including authorship. Okay? So we'll, and, and we're actually going to deal with that quite a bit today with this uh, rich and poor dynamic, and we'll get, we'll get into that in just a little bit. Um, the uh, couple key terms here, exegesis and eisegesis. We've talked about this before. Um, exegesis is to read the meaning out of Scripture. What is Scripture telling me? This is the living Word of God. Okay? Includes context and seeks to find Scripture's original intent. Eisegesis means to put the meaning into Scripture. Um, context is not important, and the meaning comes from within myself and is forced into Scripture. So that is not how we approach Scripture. Okay, and, and the way I like to frame this is exegesis is approaching it as if this is the living Word of God, which it is, and eisegesis means that this is a uh, leather-bound book, paper, that I can manipulate. Let's see. Forward. Um, when Jeff approached the epistle of... Uh, I did it too fast. Come on, go back. There we go. When Jeff approached the epistle of James, it was often seen as a book of pro- proverbial wisdom, which it is. But Jeff started looking at the book uh, differently after hearing Peter Lightheart argue that James, the apostle, was the author. This puts the epistle of James in the context of the early diaspora. And we remember, those who were here before, that diaspora is a Greek term, um, which means to sow and scatter seeds. Okay. And we can, we, we can rewind to the arguments for authorship later. I'd like to get into our content today. So our, we, we will we'll look at these chiastic structures as we go forward a little bit. So I'll, I'll make sure to copy them and bring them into what we're doing. So also this quote, our relationship with each other is the criterion the world uses to judge whether our message is truthful. Christian community is the final apologetic. And that's from Francis Schaeffer. That is. 
That is my uh, my dad picked that up yesterday. I I was just looking for a good uh, quote about you know Christian community, and that one came up. But my dad was like, "Hey, that's from the Mark of the Christian," um, I, which I haven't read, but I will read. All right, so we're going over James uh, two one through thirteen, um, and the subjects are consorting with the enemy for the love of God, dishonoring the poor man, political footsies, living like kings. The mark of maturity, showing mercy, and then a summary and reflections. We're not going to get that uh, that far today. That's why I'm at war with my outline. But let's get into the content. My brothers, show no partiality as you cling to this. Uh, excuse me, cling to the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory. Jeff Myers translated this differently than the way that we uh, originally read it this morning. Why the different translation? He says that the uh, Greek word pistis could be the faith or the faithfulness of. Myers is preferring the faithfulness of, and this is important because our lives, and particularly our church, uh, our church life, should model Jesus. So, um, excuse me. So, when when modeling Jesus, you remember earlier that Jesus is the complete man, the mature man, um, and so looking at him, the glory relates back to the earlier chapters, the Greek word teleos, which was uh, full or perfect, excuse me, mature and complete. So we are to uh, live like Jesus did, rejoice in sufferings as Jesus did persevere as he persevered, and be made uh, mature as he was made mature. And that's his only point with the uh, different translation that he used. And what he's using when he uh, goes for that different translation, he's going more towards the Greek, um, the original Greek when he uh, uses these words. So, Jesus obeyed where Adam rebelled, waited for the Father to bestow kingship while Adam grasped glory for himself. Naturally, being more like Jesus means showing no partiality. This is not a new revelation to the Jews, but a more complete revelation. And let's read what he had to say about that. And there is, there is a greater point to all this. I know it might seem muddled and confu- confusing, but I'm going to get to that in just a second, like why we're talking about this particularly. When partiality is, is that the right one? Yes. When, when impartiality is commended to Israel in the Torah, it is always in the context of rendering judgment in, in a court setting. However, in James 2, the context shifts to, great, uh, to gathered worship and indeed to all life. Beyond this shift of setting, James commands excuse me, James's commands also have more to do with correcting the more subtle sin of how a person is discriminated against informally, rather than the justice of, form, of a formally rendered legal judgment. For example, James's commands concern whom his readers pay attention to, the words they use to address different kinds of people, and their inner thoughts. Just as James's teacher, Jesus, delivered an expansion of the Old Testament law in his sermon on the mount, which called his disciples to have a more mature and complete keeping of God's ways, 
so that they would be, excuse me, so that they would be mature as God is mature, James applies the Old Testament expectation that God's people would render impartial judgment and requires his church to be loving and impartial in all their dealings with men. So, and, and this brings us to James 2, uh, 2, 2 through 4. In James 2, 2 through 4, we have that section about the, uh, the, the man who comes in dressed in the poor clothing and the man who comes in dressed in the rich clothing. And um, this section portrays the desire for us to seek power and relief through worldly means instead of faithfulness in Christ. It relates back to being stained by the world. I'm actually going faster than I thought. Am I talking too fast? <laughs> okay. Where was I? It relates back to being stained by the world that we read in James 1.27. To walk in the way of Jesus means not only to walk in the way that he walked, but also to trust as he did. Our faith is not in political means, worldly wisdom, and godly, sorry, worldly wisdom versus godly wisdom. I have here, paragraph on page 126. Here we go. The modern church would do well to remember that her most powerful political action is in her gathered Sunday worship in liturgy and preached word, and most especially in the sacramental meals and washings which mark out the new reborn humanity. Those who have been marked by Christ in baptism and feast with him in the Lord's Supper are a new race that encompasses and overcomes the distinction between all ethnicities and social classes in her manner of producing the uh, righteousness of God must be according to the rhythms of his kingdom and not the world's demands. Um, so we're going to open up, up Pandora's box here. This is, this, this is a command to not be a respecter of persons. And in, in our intersectional times, in our time when we talk, have a lot of talk about intersectionality, this is a real problem for us. Moving on to the next slide, to explain this a little better, this is a Lady Justice. I'm sure everybody's familiar. Lady Justice is blindfolded. She cannot see. And I'll read that verse in a moment. Leviticus 9. I'll go to it right now. I have it marked. Leviticus 19.15. Ye shall do... No unrighteousness in judgment. Ye shall not respect a person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. But in righteousness thou shalt judge thy neighbor. So it's interesting because we often we often see these verses twisted, and and uh, we we think and, I, and we often see like oh this is a black and white thing you know rich good uh, rich bad poor good. You know, but it's not not quite that simple, because in Leviticus 19:15 the command is, "Thou shalt not respect the person of the poor." 
Uh, doesn't mean we, you know, we don't give them, we, it means we give them due judgment. We don't see that they're poor or they're rich. She also holds the scales of justice. I have that marked out. Proverbs 11.1. 1. A false, false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is a delight. And she bears the sword. And for that, I chose the obvious. If I can find my marker. Romans 13.3 and 4. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Wilt thou, then, not be afraid of, pow- of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is a minister of God to thee for good. But if thou, if thou do that which is e- evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is a minister of God and a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil." So our focus is on this blindfolded justice. This being not a respecter of persons. How does that look? How does that look in our church community? How does that look in the greater church community? Does anybody have any thoughts on that? I can see you want to say something. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. When when somebody comes into our church, yeah. Well, it, it begins with the communion table. Um, everybody is welcome to the communion table that is eating the faith, baptized, professing the faith, and not apostatized. This contrast with uh, in the church of Corinth. There were actually tiered uh, places where there were high tables and low tables. Right. And if you were a uh, status type person and had wealth and means and appearance as well, you sat that far. And um, if you were down in the lower tiers, you might get clubbed. That type of motif is there symbolically, if not really. And there's to be a, an equality before the Lord's table. In, in Galatians, that, I think at 3.23, it says there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, bond nor free. So you have even econo- a reference to economics uh, in terms of our intrinsic worth before Jesus. There is no economic... Um, Right. 
it's interesting too, Paul, by you know bringing it to the table, um, is that even the idea of just having a bar stool does mean that there is a standard of there's right, there's wrong, and also with the table there's a standard of you know being at the table, not being at the table. Um, one of the things when when we, you talk about subjects like this, uh, if you don't set, if not actually set standards, what can happen for you know younger kids and even young adults is then they get in this mode. Well, really, should we at any point ever put a division, or just and and really our point is, well, God does place divisions, but it shouldn't be based on all the things that are human sin. Will oftentimes emphasize as the division lines, and I love how you pointed to. These are the things that God has set up, and it's not about our divisions. It's learning what are the divisions that God, and what are the sort of judgments that God wants us to set as standards of division, um, because we we see this playing itself out all the time, right? These these uh, kind of trite divisions that can be made up money, skin color, um, you know, preferences on whatever. We we can establish those, but really God sets these standards and you know for young men and young women I think part of where we've lost a lot of ground in the broader church culture is we've in, inoculated kids to the idea that or we, we've really just inculcated this idea that there's no opportunity to make judgments there's no you know standard here it's just rank everybody and that's not what's being said here it's, you know, we're equally standing before God's law, God's standard of righteousness, and we have equal opportunity because God's grace is given. It's a gift of God. It's nothing spare, uh, especially, you know, right. within us. Um, and I, I, it's one of the things I think that I've appreciated so much about here. Um, and then in our wide, wider context of the conversations that are being had within our denomination, it's just reminding people it's not about that there is no standard. It's just that God's standard is made equally, you know, available right. to us. And I, I don't know how tangential that is. That, that, no, that, that's, that's, actually, that's actually the greater point. I, I hope some of that was captured on the recording. Um, but that, that's actually the greater point. And the, the most important point here um, what you're getting at, Joe, is is basically that idea of, of godly wisdom versus wor- worldly wisdom, you know, worldly power versus godly power. Um, and uh, your last point, you know, and I'm losing it very quickly because I'm thinking 100 miles an hour. Your 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 last point was that there is a standard. Um, there, there is a standard. We like to, we like to think that you know God holds no person to a standard anymore, but there is a standard. There is a standard with God, and it's not all these worldly things that we have set up. Um, I think I, ha- I think I actually uh, put this in one of the further slides last night. But th- these things that that we set up, we like to say that well, that's a man-made. Uh, What's the what's the word that they like to use for that? Uh, yeah, that that's a man-made construct, you know, and th- things like things like ethnicity. That's a man-made construct, you know. Th- things like uh, all these all these ideas that we have with inter 
sectionality in oppressor versus oppressed um, in our modern culture. Those are man-made constructs. One, one thing I saw this week, and I, I just want to, I just want to make uh, this point was those those gentlemen who I think it was a week ago on Sunday, they took a what they call a submersible down to see the Titanic, and then there was a big deal, a lot of hoopla on the news, and then of course there's a lot of theories about that. But one of the things I noticed that was particularly disturbing to me was there was a lot of attitude of, well, that's what they get, rich people. Oh, those richy riches, you know, and, and, and I just looked at them like, well, what, what's the crime in being rich? Right. Right. And and that's a man-made social construct. Go ahead, Bob. Yeah, so they can force us to work. They should just give us that money. Right. That that's that's a very good uh, point. And thinking of that in the greater uh, context of intersectionality, and uh, you know, I think of cancel culture and things like that. But I, if you look at like inter intersectionality, you know, well, racism's worse in this country than it's ever been. Well, 
didn't we just have a black president? Yeah. You know, well, it, I thought that was progress, but but is, but we're always making progress, and yet we're fifty years behind. You know, and and that's always the story that we're given. There's no, as Joe was saying, there's no pathway to forgive this forgiveness. It it the, a question I'd like to a question I like to ponder from time to time is like, okay, what thing can we do? To get to get out of this, I'll use Jeff's word, mimetic uh, state of of perpetual uh, hate, you know, towards each other. Well, it does start at the communion table. Mm. I, I keep thinking that you know, what if, what if in the 19th century U.S. South, the slave owners would have had the slaves at the communion table? Yeah. You know, and, and, and one question that you know, is always there uh, for people that say, like, we're such a racist nation. Okay. Uh, just, I'd like an example of a better country that is in existence so we could really follow, follow that more. There isn't a more racially balanced culture than American culture because it's a, a, an idea, it's a culture that developed not around national lines, but around ideology. You know, it just, it, it's such a farce to think that the United States is the most racist country. It's just not, right. you can't find that historically. And some would say we shed an awful lot of blood to atone for that. Yeah. And that, is there anything that could have been done more to put it behind us? And their answer is no. Well, and, and that was my, that was my earlier point. Um, you you said the answer is at the communion table, and that's absolutely true. Is 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 have is having the church preach a true gospel message and get those people to the communion table, um, and and be united as one. You know, um, but the, but my my point that I was that I was uh, hanging on to was that. They, that they really don't, and when I say they, I'm talking about, um, you know, pe people who are stuck in this ideology. They really don't want to settle the issue. They want to continue the issue perpetually. Um, one, one more thought there. Um, one last thought in celebration of Pride Month um, is that is that these. Church, these churches um, that have the rainbow flags, and this is just one thought I came, I had when do, going over this area. These churches that have the rainbow flag, they're they're not saying that this is a safe place for LGBT people or that they're welcome here, but they're they're establishing that they have a, a loyalty, and and that it's actually the LGBT community reigns here. You know they have uh, they have conquered those churches. And I don't think anybody here would disagree with that, um, but.
But with that thought, does anybody have any closing thoughts before we go to prayer? All right. Our dear Heavenly Father, I uh, thank you for this day, and I pray that you would bless us. I pray that you would bless our continued conversations over the book of James, um, and I pray that you would uh, guide us. I pray that you would guide us to not be respecters of persons, not seek the wisdom of the world, but seek your wisdom when we're uh, dealing with others who might seem different by worldly means, but are truly equal under your law. And I pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.